Arian Foster is an NFL running back for the Houston Texans. He's also an atheist. The August 17th issue of ESPN, the magazine, contains a feature article on him that states, Foster doesn't believe there is anything or anyone out there capable of helping him. He's read the Bible and the Quran in search of evidence that would override his skepticism. The concept of an omnipotent being nags at him. Foster is in search of evidence. He just needs some evidence, something tangible that, that he can point to, that he can touch, that, so that it would be easier for him to believe. Well, in that sense, I suspect that he's like all of us. I mean, I don't know about you, but I often find that it's not easy to be a person of faith today especially in a place like Seattle. Now, I do want to be clear. I do believe that the Christian faith, faith is based on a solid foundation, that there is sufficient evidence on which to build our faith. And as UPC's former pastor, Bob Munger, liked to say, enough to put our trust in God's trustworthiness. But still, if I'm going to be honest, I often wish for more. I admit that it would really be helpful if God would provide us with more concrete evidence of his presence, more evidence on which we could rest our faith, more evidence that we could share with a skeptical world outside. Unfortunately, that's not the primary way God has chosen to operate. Tom Long makes the case that God is not present in the world as evidence. God is present in the world as promise, as the one who makes promises. God does not primarily say, look over there. Do you see that? There's some concrete evidence that I am at work in the world. He says instead a much harder word. Despite the evidence around you, despite what your eyes see, there is coming a day when I will beat swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. I promise you. Over against all of the evidence that evil is winning, there is coming a day when those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled and the meek will inherit the earth. I promise you, contrary to the evidence you see, the Jesus whom you saw suffer and die on the cross will live again on the third day. I promise you. Our senior pastor, George Hinman, has given us a working definition of hope. Hope is acting today on the basis of God's promises tomorrow. Hope in God's promises is the major theme in the story of Abraham and Sarah. Abram, as he was first known, was a prominent, affluent, respected patriarch 
blessed in every way by God, except one. He had no child. He and Sarah were infertile. They had no child. And in the ancient world, to have no child meant that, well, you had a past and a fleeting present, but you had no future. And Abram lamented loudly to God, I have no child. I have no child. My wife and I, we have no child. And one night, God took Abram out under the night sky and said, you see all these stars? You and Sarah will have more children than all of these. I promise you. We've talked in this sermon series about prospect versus promise. Well, Abraham and Sarah's prospect looked bleak, to say the least. But the promise of God provided hope against hope. Now, before I go on, I just want to take a little bit of time to acknowledge that there may be couples listening who face the same struggles as Abraham and Sarah, who desperately want children, but are unable to conceive. And I don't know why God would respond one way to Abraham and Sarah's situation, but not respond in a similar way uh, to similar situations faced by so many others. I don't know why many infertile couples don't get the same news promised to Abraham and Sarah. But what I do know is that God is present in our lives during challenging times, and God shares our pain. And God's promise that through Abraham and Sarah's descendants, all families of the earth would be blessed is good news that we can all hold on to. So Abraham was 75 years old when God first made this covenant with him. This was back in Genesis chapter 12. That takes us to our text for today. Genesis chapter 18 begins with Abraham sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Notice that it is now Abraham who sits there, not Abram. In the previous chapter, chapter 17, when he turned 99, God changed his name from Abram to Abraham. Names were very significant for the Hebrews. As Ben Patterson notes, a name was more than a designation. It signified an identity, even a destiny. To change a name was to exercise an awesome power over a person, for it meant, for it meant a change in who that person was and in what he or she would do and become. God exercises that power over Abraham. Abram means exalted ancestor. Abraham means ancestor of a multitude. By changing his name, God sets Abraham apart as a special servant with a special destiny to be the father of a multitude of descendants through which he would bless the entire earth. Now, he does the same thing with Sarai, changing her name to Sarah. Now, both names mean princess, 
But the renaming stresses that she belonged to God and foreshadows what she would do. Become a princess of many, for kings of people shall come from her, it says in chapter 17. It's important to notice that God first makes this promise to Abraham and Sarah when Abraham is 75 years old, and he asks that they trust him to deliver on his promise. But then, nothing happens for the next 24 years. Barbara Brown Taylor points out how difficult it must have been for Abraham and Sarah to live with their new names and what those names meant. I mean, think about it. Every time someone forgot and called him Abram, Abraham would say, no, no, it's Abraham now, remember? Even though father of a multitude was the polar opposite of his present reality. It was even worse for Sarah, princess of many, mother of nations. Even the voice of her husband Abraham would pour salt into her wound every time he said, good night, Sarah. I mean, she would hear the hope in his voice, hope that the promise would come true soon, that any day now, she could tell him that she was expecting their child. Only she didn't have anything to tell him, not yet. And every barren day that went by made her new name weigh heavier on her heart. God had asked that Abraham and Sarah trust him to deliver on his promise. The years rolled on, year after childless year, until Abraham became 99 years old and Sarah became 90. If it was today, they both might be in a nursing home, although not necessarily. I've known a lot of active 90-year-olds. But it's at this point in their lives, 24 long years after the original promise, that God appears again and says, remember that promise I made? Time to get the nursery ready. Sarah is about to become pregnant. How do Abraham and Sarah react to this news? Well, I love the way Frederick Beekner puts it. He says, the place to start is with a woman laughing. She's an old woman, and her face shows the signs of a lifetime in the desert. She hunches her shoulders around her ears and starts to shake. She squinnies her eyes shut and her laughter is full and hearty, and tears are running down as she rocks back and forth in her kitchen chair. She's laughing because she's pushing 91 hard and has just been told she's going to have a baby. Even though it was an angel who told her, she can't control herself, and her husband can't control herself himself either. He keeps a straight face a few seconds longer than she does, but he ends up cracking up too. Even the angel is not unaffected. He hides his mouth behind the folds of his golden robe, but you can still see his eyes. They're sparkling and brimming with something of which the laughter of the old woman and her husband is at best a rough translation. The old woman's name is Sarah, of course, and the old man's name is Abraham, and they are laughing at the idea of a baby's being born in the geriatric ward 
and Medicare is picking up the tab. They're laughing because the angel not only seems to believe it, but seems to expect them to believe it too. They're laughing because with part of themselves, they do believe it. They're laughing because with another part of themselves, they know it would take a fool to believe it. They are laughing because laughing is better than crying, and maybe not even all that different. They are laughing because if by some crazy chance it should just happen to come true, then they would really have something to laugh about. Sarah's reaction to the announcement that she will give birth to a son is to laugh. I mean, she's been hearing this story for the last 24 years, but she's now in her 90s and her husband is almost 100. Who can blame her for laughing? Sarah laughs because God's promise seems ridiculous. Humanly speaking, for Abraham and Sarah to conceive a child at their age, well, that would be impossible. And so they both laugh. After they laugh, they're left with nothing but God's promise in spite of the evidence at hand. Though he was nearly 100 years old and his wife was childless, Abraham hopes against hope and trusts in the promise of God. Tom Long was my preaching professor when I was a student at Princeton Theological Seminary. Years ago, when Tom first moved to New Jersey, he worshiped at a Presbyterian church that was right by the campus of Princeton University. That congregation had a rich intellectual life. There were a number of university and seminary professors in the congregation, so it seemed like a natural place for him to go and worship. One Wednesday night, he was at a family night supper, and he found himself seated next to a man he did not know, and they struck up a conversation. The man said to him, I don't recognize you. I've never met you before. How long have you been in this church? Have you been a member here long? And Tom said, no, not long. Uh, we've just moved into town and, and just joined the church. How about you? How long have you been in this church? Oh, my goodness. I've been in this church all of my life. In fact, I think I may be the last non-intellectual left in this church. Tom said, you're kidding. He said, smiling, no, no, I'm not. Then he joked, you know, I don't think I've understood a sermon that's been preached here in 25 years. But then he said, you know, I'd never leave this church. He went on to say that every Monday night, he and a few others in the congregation took the church van and drove up to the Youth Correctional Center in Somerville, New Jersey, a youth prison. Sometimes we have Bible study. Sometimes we just play ping pong, try to get to know the guys, trying to bring some comfort and hope into a bleak situation. I started doing that because I thought it was the sort of thing a Christian ought to do. But now I would not miss a Monday night because I have found that God has already gone there before me 
and it nourishes my soul, just as God promised. And then he said this, you know, I have found that you cannot prove any of the promises of God in advance. But if you live them, they're true every one. What a great reminder for us to move beyond simply listening to sermons and toward living in hope, which is acting today on the basis of God's promises tomorrow. Joy and laughter come from a faithful God who keeps his promises. Jim Wallace says, hope is believing in God in spite of the evidence and then watching the evidence change. You cannot prove any of the promises of God in advance, but if you live them, they're true every one. By the way, did Abraham and Sarah ever end up having any children? Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God who is present in this world as promise. Help us to fill our lives with joy and laughter because we're acting today on the basis of your promises tomorrow. We ask that you would grant that we would discover the truth of your promises by living them out in our daily lives. We lift up all of our prayers through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen.